Hello, my name is Evan. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God who is compassionate and merciful, very patient, full of great loyalty and faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, yet by no means clearing the guilty, punishing for their parents' sins their children and their grandchildren, as well as the third and the fourth generation. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Melissa. The New Testament reading is found in 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. If we claim we have fellowship with him and live in the darkness, we are lying and do not act truthfully. But if we live in the light in the same way as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. If we claim we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. If we claim we have never sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Mary. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, announcing God's good news, saying, Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Ash Wednesday. I want to say hi to everybody who is watching online tonight and say hi to those who are joining us from other New Life congregations or from other churches in the city. Welcome. We are so glad you're here. Special shout out to New Life Manitou. Uh, they are here with us uh, tonight. Uh, here gathered together in the presence of God for an ancient service called Ash Wednesday. I'm curious, is this anyone's first ever Ash Wednesday service? A few? Welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a very different kind of service uh, for a lot of us, but not for the church. Uh, since at least the fourth century, the people of God, Christians, have marked a time of preparation 40 days before Easter of saying, we're getting ready to celebrate this great event in history of Jesus being raised from the dead. And so they marked out 40 days before, not counting Sundays, as a way of saying, let's take that time to repent, to pray, to fast, to prepare our hearts to celebrate this great moment in history. And since at least the 8th century, the church has marked the beginning of Lent by gathering together for a service of ashes. 
It sort of stands in the long line of uh, practices of the people of God, especially in the Old Testament. As people were repenting, they would try to find ways to show what was happening on the inside on the outside, of finding ways to embody or enact or express their contrition. And so they would put on sackcloth and sit in ashes as a way of showing their brokenness and their frailty, their despair, their desperate need for God. We have abandoned the sackcloth. Uh, we now wear black cloth instead. Uh, and, but we keep the ashes as a way of marking uh, our repentance together. So that's what this service is. It's the service of repentance in the beginning of a journey toward Easter. So as, with that in mind, let's pray as we open the scriptures together. Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we pray that tonight you would grant us the grace and the strength to journey with you during this season of Lent. Help us to keep company with Jesus, to mark time and to order our lives around his life. Help us to follow the way of Jesus all the way to the cross, bearing our own crosses along the way, but also walking that path with the hope, with the joy, with the anticipation of Easter. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. If you've been gathering with us on Sunday mornings, we've been uh, walking through a series called Who is God? A three-part series on the Father, and then on the Son, and on the Holy Spirit. And so the last several weeks, we've been talking specifically about the Father, uh, and most recently, looking at the Father through the lens of Exodus chapter 34. And so we're going to conclude our conversation about the Father tonight, going back to that passage, because the passage says so much to us about God's response to our sin and to our repentance. So if you have Bibles and you want to follow along, we'll be in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. If not, everything will be on the screens for you. The passage says this, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, passed in front of him, being Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, who is this God? What is he like? Well, God who is compassionate and merciful, whose very patience, who's full of great loyalty and faithfulness. We talked about that on Sunday, covenant faithfulness toward his people, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations and forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but punishing for their parents' sins, their children and their grandchildren as well to the third and to the fourth generation. Tonight, I want to touch on two parts of this passage. One, God's anger, and second, his response to sin. What this passage proclaims to us about our God is that our God is very patient. And this is fundamentally who he is, that he is a patient God. Your version might say that God is slow to anger. In the original language, it's actually an idiom that gets used to express anger. In the Hebrew sort of worldview, anger was the same word for nose or nostrils. That this is where anger shows up for most of us, is right here on our face. For me, I found out from my wife and the team that it shows up in my blinking, that I angry blink. 
I didn't know this until a few years ago, but if you're around me and suddenly my eyes betray me, you'll know what's going on. But in the Hebrew worldview, it's the world of nostrils. And so for someone to burn with anger, it means that they have red or hot nostrils. But this passage says that God is slow to anger. In other words, his nostrils are lengthened. This is the actual idiom here, that there's something about the movement toward anger that's longer for God than it is for us. That we may burn with anger, we may be quick to anger, but God is slow to become angry. One of the implications of this that I don't think we think about very often is what this fundamentally means is that God is not always angry. God is not always angry with us. God is not always angry. He gets angry without question, but he is not fundamentally angry. It's not his disposition. We could say it this way, anger is not an eternal attribute of God. It's not how God always is, is angry. It's hard for some of us to imagine because for some of us, the most important people in our lives, maybe our parents, maybe pastors, maybe teachers, maybe mentors, maybe spouses, maybe friends, those close to us, sometimes it's an attribute of their life. And it's hard for us to imagine that God is not like that person when that person claimed to be representing God to us. It's hard for us not to transfer that. And certainly it's an attribute sometimes of people who claim to follow God. And sometimes, unfortunately, the people of God seem to be the quickest to become angry about things, the quickest to sort of explode. But it's not who God is. God is not perpetually mad at you. He's not perpetually upset with you and with your life. And when he does get angry, it is not rash, it is not erratic, it is not explosive, it is not unwarranted or unfounded. When God gets angry, it is always and only a temporary response to sin. That this is what God gets mad about. God gets mad about sin and about evil. God gets mad about the things that we do that actually destroy us, that destroy others, and destroy God's good creation. God gets angry about the things that destroy the things that he cares about, about the things that he's passionate about, about the things that he loves. God gets angry about the things that dehumanize us and others. But as a Jewish rabbi and philosopher said, it is only a transient state of God. He is not always angry. And the scriptures tell us that he won't be angry forever. Jeremiah Isaiah 57, 16 says, I won't always accuse, nor will I be enraged forever, nor will I be angry forever. It's not fundamentally who God is. But you know what does last forever? God's covenant love and faithfulness. Because the Lord is good, his loyal love lasts forever. His faithfulness lasts generation after generation after generation after generation. Yes, God does get angry, but he is not an angry God. It is not an eternal attribute of him. What is an eternal attribute is his faithfulness to us. And so it's actually within that context within the context of his love and his faithfulness that he gets angry, 
because he gets angry at the things that destroy us and others, those that he loves. And it's within that context that he actually deals with the things that make him angry. It's within the context of his faithfulness, of his loyal love, that he actually deals with sin. We see this in that passage, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations and forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion because God is covenantly faithful to his people, he then forgives our sin. Because he is faithful, he forgives. His disposition toward us is actually primarily forgiveness, not anger. Anger is not one of his attributes, but forgiveness is. Forgiveness is in the very nature of God. Forgiveness is in his bones. It's in his DNA. It is who he is. In the original language, it actually lists three different kinds or categories of sin in Hebrew. The list is meant to say that this is as inclusive as possible, that every kind of human sin gets wrapped up in this list. It's a way of the scriptures telling us that whatever you have done, that whatever you think is beyond the scope of God's forgiveness, whatever you think can't be forgiven can be. Whatever you think, whatever you're holding tonight, whatever you've come in with, whatever God is revealing to you about sin or darkness or evil inside of our own hearts, whatever those things are that we think are unforgivable, God wants to forgive. God can forgive. 1 John 1 9 tells us that if we confess our sin, if we bring it out into the light, if we're honest and truthful about it, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our, clean, our, our sins and cleanse us from everything that we've done wrong. That is the good news that's embedded inside of Ash Wednesday, that we repent, that we're truthful, we're honest about our sin, but we do so in the context of God's loyal, faithful love to us, knowing that his disposition toward us is to forgive us and that he desires to cleanse us of everything that we've done wrong. That is our hope, that is our prayer, that is our cry tonight. As we confess sin, that we'd experience the cleansing of the Holy Spirit inside of our souls. But there is another part of this passage that we need to talk about first. Exodus 34, 7 says, Yet by no means clearing the guilty, but punishing for their parents' sins, their children and their grandchildren, as well as the third and the fourth generation. There's probably not a more troubling passage to us than this one. If we're reading through that, everything sounds like really great. We're like, yes, gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness. That's great. And then we get to this. We're like, what just happened? It took like a left turn to Albuquerque and it ended up somewhere we didn't expect. What is often true of troubling passages is that a little bit of language and a little bit of cultural context can help us out quite a bit of seeing actually what's getting skewed for us in an English translation. The idea here of clearing the guilty carries with it the sense that though God does forgive, he does not eliminate or erase all the consequences of our sin. He forgives us, and yet we still experience consequence for our sin. He doesn't clear away all the effects that sin does have a negative impact in this life. Sin has a negative impact on us and on others and the world. We see this for the people of God traveling to the wilderness. 
They repent for what happened at Mount Sinai and creating the golden calf. And God forgives them. And the consequence of their sin is that they have to wander around in the wilderness and they never actually enter the promised land. This is probably, that part, that understanding is probably a little bit less difficult for us to swallow than the part about the third and the fourth generation. Punishing children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation for their parents' sins is like, wait, what? Like that gets really hard for us. How is that fair? How is that just? How is that right? How does that describe the same God here? And again, the translations don't help us. The original language is actually not punishing, but visiting. Visiting the consequences of a parent's sin upon their children, their grandchildren, and even their great-grandchildren. In other words, the idea here is that it's the first generation, second generation, third generation, fourth generation, everybody that's alive, everybody that's connected to the person, everyone that is a part of the household gets impacted by someone else's sin. It's not the idea here that God is punishing innocent parties. That's not what this passage is saying. But what he's trying to help us recognize is that our sin doesn't just hurt us. Our sin hurts other people. That as much as we might think that we live isolated and independent and disconnected lives, we don't. And that how we live and what we do actually matters because it not only impacts us, it impacts everybody that's connected to us. It impacts our entire household, if you will. All of our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and everyone in our community and our congregation, we're all connected to one another. Sin is always social. It always has social implications to it. So this passage is meant to serve as a reminder that our sin impacts others and serve as a warning, as a call to be sober-minded about our lives because we don't live independent, isolated lives. We live in community with one another. And forgiveness doesn't remove the negative consequences of our sin on us, on others, and on our world. Sin still injures. Sin still harms. Sin still destroys. Sin still dehumanizes. This is why the scriptures call us not just to confession, but actually to change. They call us not just to confession, but to repentance, to turning away from sin and learning to live in a new way that is modeled for Jesus, by Jesus and made possible by the Spirit. They were called not just to confess and be forgiven and then just keep on living that way, but to actually come before Jesus and say, would you teach us a new way to live? In Spirit of God, would you cleanse us and would you empower us to live differently? This is what the gospel writers call the fruit that follows repentance. Matthew 3.8, produce fruit that shows that you have changed your hearts and lives. Produce fruit in keeping with or bearing with repentance. We know that confession and repentance are real when we start to see the fruit that follows them as we participate with the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in our lives. This new way of living includes doing what we can to make things right with those that we've wronged. Confessing, repenting, and doing what we can to make things right with those that we've wronged. It means participating with the Spirit to avoid sin, to do good, and to do what we can to minimize the impact of sin in the world. 
while we wait for Jesus to come back and ultimately set everything right. Because we know our work will only get so far. It's Jesus that has to come and clean up all of our mess and set everything right again. In that sense, then, repentance is always just a beginning for the people of God. It's a beginning that leads us towards something else. And that's what tonight is about. Ash Wednesday is a service of repentance, and it's a time of beginning. So we confess our sin, we're honest, we repent, and then we walk out in the power of the Holy Spirit, asking the Lord to help us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, living in a different way in the same world, a way that's empowered and modeled for us by Jesus.